This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Unaffiliated voters in Colorado, there are more than a million of them, will get a special delivery ahead of the June primaries. Two ballots will come in the mail, one with Democratic candidates, one with Republicans. Never before in history have we sent you a ballot and said, but don't return it. Pick one or the other. You can't vote both. That is Colorado Secretary of State Wayne Williams. He's trying to educate voters about this new way of conducting primaries. For the first time, unaffiliated voters can participate without having to join a party. They just have to commit, as he said, to one of those ballots. Here's the thing. Casting that vote might not be as private as you'd expect. Here to explain is political scientist Seth Maskett. He directs the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver. And hi, Seth. Hi, thank you for having me on. We'll get to that privacy thing in in just a moment. But first, Colorado is the first state where primaries will be open to unaffiliated, according to the National Conference and state legislatures. And uh, we just can't say yet how this will affect which candidates move on to the general. Uh, Voters approved this new model in 2016. Remind us what was behind it. Um, Well, some of the concerns behind it were just a lot of the – some of the aggravations with the caucus process in 2016, uh, really in in both parties, where people were concerned that it was was kind of a disorganized process and also that unaffiliated voters really didn't have a choice, even though they were in some ways the largest party affiliation uh, in the state where you have, uh, you know, more people were uh, calling themselves unaffiliated than calling themselves Republicans or Democrats. And many of those unaffiliateds wanted to say in uh, who their party picked for, for president or for governor or for any other race. Let's be clear. Um, what happens when an unaffiliated voter chooses one of the ballots and votes in a party primary this year? They don't lose that unaffiliated status, right? That's correct. They remain unaffiliated um, and they simply get to participate in that uh, in that party's primary, however, they they can only participate in that party's primary. They can't pick and choose among offices. They can't vote in the Democratic primary for governor and in the Republican primary for the House race or anything like that. They they have to stick with one of them. Um, and also um, that choice that they make of which party to affiliate with just for the purposes of that primary that's a public record. So their their vote choice is not public, but which uh, which party they chose to join uh, for just the purposes of voting in that primary, uh, that is a public record. And that's the crux of what I want to talk to you about. Uh, as you say, unless you took a ballot selfie, which is legal in Colorado, and revealed the candidates you voted for, that is not public. But the ballot you chose, be it Democrat, be it Republican, that is public information. That's not private. That's correct. And that was really uh, kind of a compromise measure that, that came out of the legislature on this. Uh, there were some who were advocating basically for people to uh, simply affiliate with the party from that point on. That is, if you chose the Democratic ballot this year, then you would get the Democratic ballot in the mail two years from now and you would be functionally treated as a Democrat. And others pushed back on that saying, you know, the whole point of being unaffiliated is to not affiliate. Um, so this was seen as kind of a kind of a middle ground there um, where you would just be treated as part of that party's primary, but just for that election. OK, so people who are very private about their political participation uh, should beware approaching this new primary in Colorado. What do the parties get out of this? If, if that was a bargaining chip in the creation of this law, uh, what what benefits do do they reap? 
Well, potentially there's some value in knowing uh, who's affiliating with with which party. Uh, That is, you know, we know that uh, the vast majority of unaffiliated voters um, largely stick with one party throughout their life. They may call themselves independent or unaffiliated or anything like that, but chances are they vote pretty consistently with one party. They just prefer not to describe themselves that way. Um, The problem is it's very hard for parties or campaigns to figure out just who those people are and which ones generally affiliate with their party. So in theory, this helps them figure that out. So if they have a good idea, if the Democratic Party has a good idea who the the pretty loyal Democratic voters are, even if they call themselves unaffiliated, they can reach out to those people in future elections. They can uh, send them mail, knock on their door, you know, try and make sure that those people turn out. I want to be clear that the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, in looking at this as a public record, could connect an individual with which ballot they chose. It's not that it's generic, like we know that this person lives in this zip code. They could say Jane Smith requested a Republican ballot. It's 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 that clear. Um, yeah, and this is this is pretty standard across uh, just about every state that uh, you can uh, request or purchase uh, this data from the Secretary of State's website. Um, there's just a, a list of a voter registration list to see who is affiliated with which party, who voted for that party, and yeah, you get uh, you get names, you get addresses, and you get uh, the party choice for the primary on that. Do you think this is a powerful new tool for the parties? You said that this, in theory, couldn't could make a difference. It's potentially useful. Um, the problem is it's it's not always a very clear indicator of which way a, a, a voter really cares. So, for example, um, you might have someone who's legitimately torn between the two parties and just decide, well, the Republican primary doesn't look that interesting to me. I think I know how that one's going to turn out, whereas the Democratic one looks more competitive. So maybe I'll vote in that because mm. I think my vote can make a bigger difference. Um, or they might uh, actually really prefer one party but decide to in some ways meddle with the other party's primary uh, because they want to produce a weaker candidate uh, in, in, out of the primary. Um, so so there, there are all sorts of reasons why someone might pick one primary over the other that don't actually have much to do with uh, the way they actually lean. Right. That may not reveal a lot about that person's political thoughts. Thanks for explaining this to us, Seth. We appreciate it. Oh, certainly. Thanks for having me. Seth Maskett directs the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver, and he joined us actually from Washington, D.C. to discuss the upcoming Colorado primaries. Soon, freestanding emergency departments in Colorado will have to be more transparent These facilities have sprouted up along the front range, but consumers often confuse them for less costly urgent care centers, and sometimes those patients get surprised by a high bill. As CPR health reporter John Daly tells us, lawmakers pass new legislation to give consumers a better idea of what to expect. Thanksgiving Day last year, and two-year-old Kelsey Waking takes a tumble and cuts her head. Her dad, Ken, searches Google Maps for the nearest urgent care, and goes to a facility in a nearby shopping center in Arvada. But it wasn't far from the house. Waking thought insurance would cover most of the claim. Then he got the bill. I was shocked. It came in, it was $6,400. 
And I'm like, this, what, what is this for? <laughs> the bulk of that total, a single medical charge for the emergency visit of $5,600. Waking, who's a health analyst, says if he'd known the potential cost up front, he would have gone elsewhere. This was a sticker shock. These kind of stories prompted three legislative bills this session to rein in freestanding emergency rooms. Representative Lang Sias, a Republican from Arvada, says he's been hearing from constituents. Oh, consumers get this at a very at a very gut level. Lawmakers passed a proposal he co-sponsored that requires written notices about procedure costs and consumer rights. Sias calls himself a free market conservative, but says markets don't work well if people don't know basic pricing. Be in business, charge charge what the customers will are willing to pay, but you got to be transparent so that they can make decent decisions. Democratic Senator Dr. Irene Aguilar from Denver offered a prescient warning about costs at these new facilities way back in 2014 when Colorado had 15 such ERs. The uh, concern was that this was going to be a new business model and how could we stop this in its tracks because I could see how it was going to be ripe for abuse. She tried to ban them within 25 miles of hospitals, which often affiliate with them. She tried to prevent them from charging facility fees. And Aguilar had seen them spread like wildfire in Texas. That was exactly what I anticipated would happen in Colorado, and unfortunately that was exactly what happened. Her legislative proposals went nowhere. Since then, the number of freestanding emergency departments has tripled to 50. One reason is that Colorado is one of a few states that don't require a certificate of need for a new hospital. That means they can go up anywhere competing for patients. They're emergency rooms, and they charge emergency room prices, and a lot of people aren't expecting that. That's Edmund Toy of the nonpartisan Colorado Health Institute. He says only Texas and Ohio have more freestanding ERs. Consumers like the convenience but bulk at what looks like price gouging. And Toy says now lawmakers of both parties are taking notice. The fact that this is the first year where... Um, these kinds of bills have gotten this far in the legislative process is reflective of of that tension, I think. The facilities are usually owned by or affiliated with hospitals. Julie Lomborg with the Colorado Hospital Association says they've heard complaints from customers. CHA and its member hospitals are absolutely committed to further transparency around freestanding emergency departments. She says they're recommending hospitals post information about pricing and facility fees. They created an ad campaign and website called Where for Care about when to use primary, urgent, or emergency care. But Lomborg says consumers want quality care close to home without a wait, and these systems meet that. I think that's the model of the future nationally and for Colorado. UC Health has a number of freestanding ERs. Spokesman Dan Weaver says its system offers a variety of services and has worked to educate patients about the difference. Emergency departments are the most expensive form of care, and he says if patients have a problem that can be handled by urgent or primary care... To utilize the urgent care or primary cares first. It was a UC Health facility that treated Ken Waking's daughter and sent him the bill for more than $6,400. Weaver can't discuss a specific case, but he says hospitals offer discounts based on contracts with insurers. They also provide discounts for self-pay patients or the uninsured. So it's important to look at the actual billed amount um, that comes after that discount. Ken Waking says ultimately his insurance covered most of the surprise ER bill. 
but he wonders if the facilities can survive full cost transparency. They would probably get, end up having to shut down because I don't think people would be using them. Consumers will get a look at the new rules soon. The governor recently signed the transparency legislation. The new notices will be required at freestanding ERs next year. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Okay, why are freestanding ERs proliferating? Our next guest can help answer that, and he'll also clue us in on other big changes in healthcare. Chaz Rhodes is co-founder and CEO of GIST Healthcare. It provides strategic advice to healthcare companies around the globe. He joins us from Washington, D.C. Hi, Chaz. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. In John's story, we heard from the Colorado Hospital Association that this is the future nationally and for Colorado. Do you see freestanding emergency departments that way? I think they definitely are. So there's a lot going on here. Uh, You know, one of the uh, big drivers of the growth of freestanding EDs is just a desire on the part of consumers, as you heard in the story, for more convenient care closer to home when I need it. And I think uh, in general, what we've seen happen is uh, traditional hospital ERs have gotten very crowded. Um, unfortunately, very often people use them for reasons that they don't really need to be in a hospital ED, but either they don't have their own primary care physician or they can't get an appointment in time or there's not another place for them to go. So they end up in the ED. And that's gotten a reputation as being a very frustrating way and a very expensive way to get care. And so we've seen consumers really turn on to the idea of these more convenient care options. And I think the freestanding ED just looks like one thing, but acts like a very different thing in in reality. Yeah. Do you think that part of the freestanding ER or ED business model is that they are deceiving clients into thinking we're just a quick clinic? Do, Do you think that's baked in? You know, I don't think that that's the intention on the part of most of these facilities. I mean, you know, clearly there is a price arbitrage happening. And one of the ways we know that's happening is because there's two kinds of freestanding EDs. There's the kind that's associated with a hospital and the kind that isn't associated with a hospital. And over time, the the true freestanding EDs have more and more moved to align with or affiliate with hospitals because they can get even higher prices if they're on the hospital's uh, contract or the hospital billing code. So there is a little bit of the pricing game going on. But I think in general, uh, hospitals and others who are in this business are just trying to solve this problem of how can we engage with consumers in more convenient settings and provide more access to care. Unfortunately, the we don't really have a true market in healthcare, and so there's a lot of inefficiency that gets in the way of doing that. We don't have a true market in healthcare. Uh, that 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 we could spend an hour on that qu- point alone. <laughs> what do you notice about where freestanding ERs are opening? I mean, they're often in more affluent suburbs. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's, you know, when this model first started, it was actually back in the 70s. And the idea was to give access to people in rural communities that might not otherwise have uh, close by uh, emergency care. Uh, But over time, and, and, you know, most of this trend has started since 2010, most of the growth of freestanding EDs has been in just the last eight or nine years. All of the new activity, for the most part, has been in the affluent suburbs where younger populations live who have better commercial insurance and are more interested in sort of engaging in their own care and, and seeking out convenient alternatives. It's a, it's a very lucrative market for folks who have gotten into it. Okay, to some other issues. Nationally, hospitals and health system mergers jumped considerably last year. 
and in Colorado as well. Um, Health systems on the front range have been growing and adding other hospitals to their networks, often in rural areas. There's UC Health, SCL Health, Centura. They all come to mind. Is that just simple economics? What's going on? Yeah, I mean, I think it, a lot of it has to do with the, uh, with the impact of the Affordable Care Act and the implications of the Affordable Care Act. One of the big things that the ACA did uh, is to put in place a fairly sizable cut to hospital reimbursement in the Medicare program. Um, didn't get a lot of attention. Mostly folks talked about the coverage expansion in the ACA, but uh, there's a fairly sizable uh, haircut that hospitals take over time to how much they get paid by Medicare. And anytime you see pricing pressure like that, especially from your largest payer, inevitably what happens is consolidation. And that's and that's really what we're seeing um, in hospital land these days. And the other thing the ACA did was create incentives for hospitals to work more closely with doctors and others to coordinate care and move care to the right setting. Uh, and so that has also sparked uh, vertical integration, hospitals acquiring physician practices and getting into the urgent care business, opening freestanding EDs, all of that sort of stuff. Hmm. What was the reasoning behind the haircut, as you call it, to Medicare, the program for uh, older folks? Well, it's called the productivity adjustment, and the notion was uh, that we were going to link uh, the price increase that we give to hospitals every year legally as part of the Medicare program. Hospitals get a cost of living update. We're going to link that to overall productivity in the economy so that uh, we didn't see sort of runaway growth in, in Medicare spending because most of the spending happens in, in expensive hospitals. Uh, and so we adjust that cost of living increase by – how much productivity increased in the general economy on the assumption that we were going to make hospitals more productive huh. uh, or expect hospitals to get more productive over time. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Chaz Rhodes. He's co-founder and CEO of Just Healthcare, a D.C.-based company that provides strategic advice to healthcare companies. We are talking about big changes in healthcare right now. Uh, not limited, by the way, to freestanding ERs. I want to note, Chaz, that uh, big hospital systems that are opening or acquiring these freestanding ERs all face new competition. I mean, I think of the pharmacy giant CVS and its deal with the big insurer Aetna. They want to offer more healthcare services in drugstores. Retail giant Walmart is in early talks with the big insurer Humana as Walmart makes an aggressive multi-billion dollar push into the health insurance market. Uh, is, is that competition part of the equation here? It absolutely is. So, you know, it, we talk a lot in the popular press and in, in just conversations about Amazon and Apple and yep. all the tech companies in California that could have a big impact on healthcare. But in reality, it's the retailers who, are, who actually could have the much bigger impact. And I think the Walmart story almost dwarfs anything else that uh, that could potentially disrupt traditional healthcare because Walmart already has a you know it's a gigantic footprint as a retailer it's got a big pharmacy operation it already has a collaboration with Humana to offer a very low cost drug plan and it's been inching into the primary care space over the past few years that in Texas there are a handful of clinics where Walmart has been piloting very low cost primary care both for its own employees uh, and for its shoppers Uh, And so by acquiring Humana or getting a closer partnership with Humana, I think what Walmart sees is the opportunity to really become the nexus of care 
for folks, particularly seniors, frankly, in the in the in the Medicare uh, world, who are looking for uh, quick, lower cost access um, to care, and that really is disruptive to the traditional providers, not just hospitals, but traditional physicians and so forth. Everybody's very worried about what those uh, retailers with their big footprint and market power could do. That is everybody providing health care, but should the consumers be gleeful at this idea of competition? And the potential lowering of their bills and, and perhaps absolutely. more and more absolutely. access. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely right. So what will this result in for consumers? It will result in lower prices and more convenient access. Um, now, the, you know, the care – what the traditional providers will all say is what the care is not as good. Do you want to get your – do you want to get your care at Walmart or do you want to get your care from our great doctors or, you know, from our great hospitals and our great clinics? And what most consumers will say, because they're on the hook for so much of the spending now, we all are walking around with very high deductibles and co-insurance and so forth, is I'll settle for good enough. Mm. Uh, it's good enough for me to go to a retail clinic or see a nurse practitioner or a clinical pharmacist instead of a you know highly compensated physician for what I am looking for. Sort of a brass tax question here. Do you think in the future I'll walk into a Walmart superstore for my health care? Or do you imagine that Walmart would build its own freestanding building for doctors, nurse practitioners, and patients? No, I think it's more likely that Walmart will be the front door to healthcare. So it'll, I think, or or the WalMarts of the world. Whether Walmart pulls this off or not, I think is an open question. Oh. But I think the the retail clinics will be the front door for low end, uh, low acuity primary care. Telemedicine will also play a big role in that and and folks accessing care on their phones or on their computers. Um, But what Walmart will do then is turn around and build a low-cost referral network. If you need to go see a specialist, if I need to send you for a scan or you have to go to the hospital, I'm going to identify the very lowest cost, best value providers to work with and direct you there instead of to just wherever you end up going in the market. Meanwhile, employers, uh, through which so many Americans and Coloradans get their health care, are increasingly in a bind, struggling to pay for coverage for their employees. Uh, This is not just an individual market question. No, that's right. And I think employers, if they had their druthers, they'd rather just get out of this game altogether. Um, You know, the market competition on a global level is happening now. Costs are a big concern for every employer and everybody is finding themselves in the business of having to manage networks and benefit design and and really employers, self-funded employers who who have their own insurance plans are really just using insurance companies as as claims processors and and administrators. And so they're really bearing the, the direct clinical cost of care. And if I'm in the business of making windshields or hammers or something like that, I really don't know anything or know enough about healthcare to make smart decisions there. So what I think the employers would really like to do is step back from it. And we've started to see them do that in the form of high deductible healthcare, shifting more of the risk and accountability onto their employees. I think that's the first step toward uh, what I would think of as 401k healthcare, really defined contribution, the same thing that's happened with retirement benefits. We'll just give you a check every year. You go buy your own health care. You decide you know, how much you want to pay for as an employee. Fascinating. And I can hear arguments on both sides as to what the future looks like. Maybe the future looks like competition in the private marketplace that drives down the cost of health care so you can afford to pay for it out of pocket. I can hear others saying if employers start to drop health insurance altogether, that's an argument for a single payer system or uh, universal coverage under, you know, a, a program like Medicaid. Um, 
lots of arguments about the future. I suppose it's not clear which direction uh, the country is headed in and states are headed in. And I think it could go both directions. I think we could have a public uh, health care system for lower income folks or for a subsistence level of health care and then private competition uh, for folks who are more affluent or can afford a, a better quality of care. And there are big you know, societal questions we'll have to answer about how happy we are with that outcome. Is that equitable? Is that something that we want our health care system to do? But just to bring it back to uh, the, the topic that we started on and this whole conversation around freestanding EDs, the yeah. one thing that has to happen for any of this to work out is we have to have real prices in healthcare. And the, the pricing mechanisms in healthcare are so inefficient and opaque right now that consumers really have no ability to make a smart decision about where to receive care because it's very hard to figure out what things actually cost. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. He is Chaz Rhodes, co-founder and CEO of GIST Healthcare, which advises healthcare companies. A major Colorado company reported stellar profits last year. But here's the thing. A lot of people think this company is on its deathbed. To square this up for us, I'm joined by media analyst Ken Doctor, who has been following developments at the Denver Post. And Ken, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. We have heard a lot about the Denver Post in the last few months. After a series of layoffs, the newsroom's down to about 60 people from a height just a few years ago of around 300 the, Post, the Post's own editorial page raged against the paper's hedge fund owner, Alden Global Capital, begging for new ownership. Alden, highly secretive. But you say you've obtained the company's financial statements for the dozens of newspapers it owns across the country. Is that right? Right. Yeah, I did, and I published that earlier this week. $159 million in annual profits, and pretty much steady as it goes, they're cutting to make that number year after year. Alden runs newspapers nationwide through a company called Digital First Media. And what is the picture on the ground in Colorado specifically in terms of revenue and profits? So the, um, the uh, profit number is uh, $36 million in Colorado. So that's the post and the smaller uh, dailies and weeklies that have accumulated around the, uh, the metro area, Boulder, Longmont, etc. Uh, about $28 million of that is, would be derived directly from the Denver Post. So $28 million in profits, and uh, about a 17 to 19%, depending on which property's profit margin. So the profit margin is a, a number, when, when I look at it, uh, we can compare it in other industries, but most important, compare it within the newspaper industry, and it's about triple what its peers are taking in. Wow. In a, in a time when there's just tremendous stress on the industry overall, but it is triple. 17 to 19% uh, profits. Yeah. And I'm sure there are any number of businesses out there that would like to see those numbers. And, sure. And yet, the newsrooms, especially the Denver Post newsroom, is being slashed. Square those things for us. 
So it, it, it is a downward spiral company. If you look at the newspaper industry, which I do uh, day after day, uh, the, the whole thing has been, as an industry, spiraling down for 10 years. The question is, how fast is the spiral and what is a company doing to reverse that spiral? So our, our best example is the Washington Post, Jeff Bezos, uh, reinvests, uh, hires essentially 400 new journalists and technologists, and they are on an upward spiral. Most companies, uh, if we look at the, the bigger companies like, a, like a, even a trunk, which is troubled, or a Gannett, um, they are taking less profit. They're trying to reinvest in digital. They're trying to figure out a way forward. They're having problems, but they're not losing the same amount of money or subscribers that Alden's DFM is because Alden essentially has just given up and is milking the enterprise. So with uh, larger losses in revenue, uh, especially on the subscription side, Alden's Alden's dictate to its uh, managers is very simple. Meet that profit number no matter what you have to cut. Mm. And that's how we got to this story at the Denver Post of uh, this, this this slash from 90 to 60, which is a huge slash, of course, proportionally and in terms of its impact. DFM, again, digital first media. Right. I, I think this has been described as harvesting cash from a company, that that's what it Alden is doing here. That's that's probably the better term. Uh, the, 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 the nicer term, harvesting, is a nice, good Midwestern term, right? Liquidation uh-huh. is another one. Uh, vulture capital, and that's not a term that just is thrown at it by by, op, uh, by opponents of it, but basically a distressed dying business or a distressed dying industry has a lot of value. And it's not something that we focus on in, in the news business or I think in the news. But if you can find a business that nobody else wants but still kind of, still creates value, you just milk it till literally you turn out the lights. And that is, I have had highly confirmed by a number of sources, that is unfortunately all in strategy. And it's one that people of Denver, Colorado, and all of its other cities have to contend with. It is that simple. Of course, there are those who would argue with the idea that this is a dying industry. Jeff Bezos, who, as you say, is reinvesting in the post. And of course, there's lots of talk about the potential for a local group to buy the Denver Post from Alden Global Capital. Uh, talk to us about where that stands. I understand. So there that, have been inquiries. Yeah. I know you've covered some of them on CPR, and, and there have been inquiries, and I understand that uh, Philip Anschutz, the owner of the Colorado Springs Gazette, and a, another billionaire who has been interested in the press, um, has made a recent inquiry but been rebuffed. Been rebuffed. The problem is that, uh, number one, you look at the price. So I know there was activity and people said, well, maybe we raised $10 million. Uh, what Alden has said, and as Alden has sold other papers in the last three years, it says we want four and a half times that profit number. So if that profit number is $36 million, yeah. Um, as I've reported, that's $144 million for the Colorado properties overall, something less, you know, maybe $115 million range for the Denver Post. So $10 million doesn't get you very far. And that's if they were willing to sell 
but that's the that's the kind of pricing they have put on it. The other problems in Denver are actually greater in terms of of seeing them sell because they have a very low tax basis, meaning they would pay high taxes on any sale, and they do not want to pay high taxes. And uh, Denver contributes a lot to their corporate overhead. So Denver, in a lot of ways, the Post, in a lot of ways, is the paper they want to sell least of what they have left. Well, as we mentioned, the latest layoffs at the Post caused an unprecedented backlash, a six-page section of editorials in the Post, public officials speaking about the need for new ownership, and very little, if nothing, from Alden in public about this. But according to your reporting, they are quite upset. What's an example of that? So they're quite upset about uh, the individuals, the, the fact that their own employees would essentially take them on in print is infuriating. And it's, it's quite understandable on a human basis. Um, and they're, they're also saying, why should we pay these people? But they're in an interesting box. Uh, the box is they understand that if they were to terminate or even per- perhaps reassign more people, there could be even more blowback. So they have fired the editorial page editor in Boulder. That's right, who Dave Krieger. published a, a, a statement. But if they do more, um, they, they're, they're, they are facing blowback. And the most interesting blowback, Ryan, is on money. So when we step back from this, this company does not care about civic mission, public mission, very clear. What they care about is maximizing their investment. So I have new information, actually, over the last uh, day, and I had written about how they had had some issues with lenders. And now I've learned that these lenders um, who have been talking to them about refinancing a credit facility they have in the neighborhood of $250 million are balking at doing that, in part because of these protests. And the protests hurt the business. And if you hurt the business and you're lending them money, you're saying, hmm, I'm not sure how stable this uh, commitment of money is. So that's where we stand today. It's a kind of limbo, I think, uh, that Alden and uh, everybody associated with it, including us journalists and readers, are in. I just want to say more about what happened in Boulder at the camera. So the editorial page editor there Dave Krieger was fired when he wrote an editorial that was critical of Alden, this hedge fund that owns the Post, the camera, other papers. His publisher had refused to print it, and so Krieger posted it on a blog and uh, was fired as a result of that. Uh, What about advertisers' voices? Could they be critical in this? If all, yeah. Sure, they definitely could be, and I hear that they may be. I've heard that there are two significant advertisers that have talked of pulling out, um, suspending their advertising. And, of course, that's a dicey game because um, any further damage to this enterprise could mean even more journalists losing their job, uh, a suspension rather than a termination of advertising, or the same thing is true on a subscription level, um, could, could have impact. So again, it's the same thing. If a company only cares about cash flow and money, what gets in the way of its ability to harvest this level of profits? And and you put your finger on it, advertisers would be the main one. Advertisers would still pay about uh, 65-70% of the the total uh, costs of of the uh, post at this point. 
So that is something to watch. Thanks for being with us again, being our touchstone in many ways as we oh, track sure. this story. Glad to do it. He's media analyst Ken Doctor, author of the book Newsonomics, which is also the name of his blog. And we talked about sizable profits at the Denver Post as the paper's owner slashes staff. There are families in Colorado who didn't move an inch, but found themselves in another country. Let's go back to 1848, the end of the Mexican-American War. Mexico gave up a huge part of what's now the southwestern United States. The Latina poet Juliana Aragon Fatula of Canyon City puts it this way. You know, we didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. And when the border moved, families in the region were split apart, lost their land and more. It's the subject of a new exhibit called Borderlands of Southern Colorado. It's at the El Pueblo History Museum in Pueblo. Don DePrince of History Colorado joins us. Welcome to the program, Don. Thank you, Brian. The border crossed us. A lot of people in Southern Colorado say that. Uh, What did it mean practically and culturally when that happened? Well, it was um, an example of displacement in place. And so usually when you think of people as being displaced, it means that they move to another space. But this was people living in the same lands, their homelands, but being treated um, in some ways as foreigners in the lands where their ancestors were from. Being treated as foreigners, what did that mean in their lives? Um, in, in some ways, it meant um, new laws, um, uh, new uh, ways of property ownership, new language, um, new religion, um, all of those things. Right. One day you wake up and you're under the rule of another nation. Absolutely. It, oh, my goodness. To tell us about some of the political goings on uh, that led to this. So there's an important treaty at the end of the war that leads to the border crossing. Yes. So um, for many people, they don't understand that the Arkansas River that flows through Pueblo was once the international border between U.S. and Mexico. And um, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo changed all of that. It moved the border to where it practically is today. And so um, when you live south of the river in Pueblo at this time, that would have been Mexico. And so it's very uh, important to remember the way in which this international document transformed um, the lives of Puebloans and Southern Coloradoans. Fascinating. And this treaty, which the El Pueblo Museum has on loan from the National Archives, uh, set the southern border then of the United States to its current location along the Rio Grande, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. What do you feel when you see that treaty? Well, it's... It, it's very powerful to see um, a document that impacted the lives of so many. Um, but it's interesting when you talk to people from our community. We just had a gentleman yesterday who explained to him how excited he was that this document was here. But it was also simultaneously painful because it, of the impact it had on um, his ancestors. Yeah, because part of this was collecting oral histories. I, I want to play a clip from George Otteby of Avondale, just east of Pueblo in Pueblo County, um, who says his ancestor had thousands of acres to farm in the area. But after the treaty was signed, the U.S. government didn't recognize his right to the land. To us, it destroyed literally our family in regards to financial because our family lost everything, couldn't keep the land. He died in poverty. He died on the land because they let him stay there. But uh, he had nothing. 
the rest of our family ended up being scattered, working as farm laborers, a lot of them. How does this past affect his family today? How does this reverberate? Well, that's what's really interesting about this concept of displacement in place. Um, You know, people who were once landowners are now working the same land. And as you can imagine, um, the impact that that would have on one's personal wealth and familial wealth over generations. So if you are working the land, you obviously are um, getting something different from that same land as you would as a landowner. And so what you find is... um, And you can see this statistically. You find that there are generational disenfranchisement of these same families who've been in this same landscape for seven, eight, nine plus generations. Such an amazing and immediate change of fortune. Uh, I have people in the Pueblo area rolling their eyes, I suspect, at the pronunciation of that town. It's Avondale. Avondale, absolutely. I I want to apologize. Chris, there's Avon elsewhere in this (laughs) state. Uh, Forgive my ignorance. Another man in the Pueblo area wrote to his wife after the treaty was signed. Uh, This was in Spanish, and and here's the translation. I believe that this is the last letter that I will write you. I will tell you why, because we are in great danger of the Texans and the Indians. We are more certain of dying than of living. I feel very deeply to leave my children so young, but God will see to them." The letter goes on. Tell us just a a bit about it. Well, um, I want to first explain how this letter came into our possession. Um, A woman from Pueblo, Vera Estrada, came to one of our memory workshops, and this is a letter from her ancestor to his wife. Um, He wrote it from Rio Nepesta, which is the indigenous mestizo way of um, calling the Arkansas River. And um, he basically writes his wife to say, I may not make it. Please let my children know who their father is. Please ensure that these people receive my goats. Um, There's an amazing part of the letter where he encourages his wife to go look in this special place in the kitchen um, in a kettle, a copper kettle. And we wonder what maybe she would have found there. Um, What I think is really significant about this letter in relationship to the treaty, the treaty signed in February of 1848, Mm -hmm. and this letter is written in August of 1848. So That's how quickly his life got that bleak. Yep, yep. I mean, that's our understanding, that his life is an upheaval. There's uncertainty um, because of the impact of the treaty. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking to Don DePrince from History Colorado about this new exhibit called called Borderlands of Southern Colorado. And it is about how the border crossed those who were living in Southern Colorado when what was Mexico became the United States. And uh, indeed, you refer to this as borderlands. How is that different from a border, do you think? Um, Borders borders are very, um, they're more like barriers. They're dividers. And borderlands is different than that. Um, What you find in Borderlands is the ways in which cultures adapt to live within that um, space that somebody may have divided. You find cultures that mix and overlap. Um, There's an interesting hybridity. There's also multiplicity. And by that, I mean um, people learn to live in multiple worlds at the same time. Hmm. Um, That can be a function of language. That can be a function of culture. It might be faith. Yes, yes. Faith and practice and um, 
what we find is it's a it's a form of resilience and resourcefulness that almost forms its own unique culture. Do you still see that today in Southern Colorado? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the best parts about living in Southern Colorado is that um, people have retained their culture in uh, ways that I think are unique uh, to the rest of the state. How do you see that? Give me an example. Um, I... When I think about weddings, weddings in Pueblo are a very big uh, cultural tradition. In fact, I just attended a big wedding in Pueblo this weekend with 800 people at the state fairgrounds, a giant cookie table, and um, people of all sorts of ethnicities and practices take place at um, those kinds of cultural familial rituals. And so you see in them... Uh, aspects of of the crossroads of cultures. Absolutely, you know, at a at a kitchen table, you may find tamales and Italian goat cheese and um, Slovenian kabasi, and that would not be um, abnormal. Huh. Uh, we've been talking about the border between the U.S. and Mexico, uh, but were people also affected when the Colorado state borders were drawn? Yeah, that was something that was really, we discovered, um, it's a very interesting part of our research. Okay. You know, oftentimes when you live in Southern Colorado, people believe that um, there is already, a, there's a imaginary border uh, between Northern Colorado and Southern Colorado. Hmm. And um, it's interesting that that's actually historically based. Uh, where we live in Colorado was considered the New Mexican notch. And um, people argued very hard that that part of Colorado should remain part of New Mexico because of the familial ties that crossed um, those communities. And um, right before the Civil War, though, they decided they needed to hurry up and make Colorado a state um, so it could support the Union. And they just followed those latitude and longitude lines and, and created the state that we have today. And not a notch. Do you, think, do you think that there are people in Southern Colorado who sort of spiritually feel a part of New Mexico? Oh, absolutely. Um, and and a lot of that's based on um, family and tradition. Many people who live in Southern Colorado, um, their roots are northern New Mexico or the San Luis Valley. And so they're just very tied to that space ancestrally. And just one more border that crosses them and that complicates our understanding of them, their sense of themselves, perhaps. How do you think this history uh, fits into the traditional story of the American West? Like, does it give us a different picture of how we usually cast it? Well, I think um, one of the things our exhibit does that um, I think challenges the normal narrative of the American West is it reminds us of the people who were already here. Oftentimes when you hear um, about manifest destiny and westward expansion, you get the sense that this land was empty. And in fact, we have had families um, living in the space for many, many generations. Um, one of my very favorite parts of the story are the, um, the women of the borderlands, because oftentimes these stories don't talk about women. We may, we may think of men often, but there were many women of color in the borderlands who were leaders and um, ambassadors. Give us an example. Uh, well, one of my uh, very favorite uh, characters from all of history is uh, Machi Ochini Prowers from um, 
the Bent County, Los Animas area. Amachi, I, I think of that as associated with the Japanese-American internment camp. Yes, the internment camp was named for her. Um, but she was a Cheyenne woman. Um, her father was killed at the Sand Creek Massacre, and she was um, given land and reparations um, as part from the state um, because of the death of her father. She married John Prowers, who was an Anglo man. And there's Prowers County. And Prowers County, absolutely. And um, there, we have this beautiful photo mural of her in the exhibit um, where she's wearing a velvet dress. And so oftentimes people see her in that in that way. But archaeologists discovered that she, in fact, um, protected her Cheyenne ways and cooked with stone tools and and still followed beading practices. And we have those stone tools in our exhibit. Well, thank you for sharing these stories with us and how it reverberates today in Southern Colorado. Thank you. And in Avondale. Yes, Avondale. <laughs> it's uh, History Colorado's Don DePrince. She helped curate the new Borderlands of Southern Colorado exhibit at Pueblo's El Pueblo History Museum. It opens tomorrow. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.